Okay, as you know, we're discussing the book of source. Thank you for the email. No, I mean, no, 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 never. If anybody hasn't been getting the email, if you put your email address over here, I'll try and make sure that Ricky gets it to send it out in the future. Sorry that we don't have a big piece of paper, but I told someone to send We are studying the book of the, the book known as the source. It's a very important book because it impacted and shaped the way hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, view Jews and Judaism. As we mentioned to you before, the source is translated into 35 different languages. There are currently 3 million copies in print, even though it's published more than 40, 45 years ago. So it's an extraordinarily impactful book. What we are doing in terms of and shaping the world is reflected in a book like The Source. James Michener, non-Jewish author, sees something extraordinary about the Jews and therefore writes a thousand page book about the Jews. What is thought by the Jews, something that we have to discuss and see what is the key variable that he sees in the Jews and, he's checking the last page, I know it. I know it, see, last page, okay. Should have done for homework, not now. But that, that, is one, that is one of the issues, what he saw. Was it the Jewish longevity? Was the Jewish way of life, as Mark Twain had said? Was it the impact of the Jews on the world, as we discussed last week? What was the factor? What is the key critical variable that the Jews represented that brought James Michener ten years of research to write a thousand-page book? That they came back to the land of Israel. Uh, that's in a, perhaps. That's a good point, and you can support that from the text. <laughs> and he got paid by the word, so that obviously. That's a very good point. That could be. Yeah, it could be. In other words, maybe you were in 65, you started working on it, let's say, in 56-78, and because he was mesmerized in his trip to Israel, perhaps, seeing what they had done, and therefore we have to write it out. That's a good point that one can, that one can pursue. I made the point last week that my concern with this book is of three types. Part of it I am intensely concerned about, part of it I'm not concerned at all about, and part of it I'm moderately concerned about. The part that I am not concerned at all about actually is the contemporary events of the tale itself, of the Makor itself. I don't care about that. It's a nice love story about John and your or whatever his name is, I don't care about that part at all. I skip, I read that part, but now when I reread it for this class, I skip that part. It's a nice, fictionalized love story that takes me no place. However, could you bring up the Martin Kimberly issue that I Right, correct. But the book has such impact on me in the other areas of it that I'm not even worried about those issues right now. Those are not my issues right now. What I am intensely concerned about are the questions that this book raises the challenges it offers to my basic beliefs is what I have to make sure that I actually explore. In the same way as we discussed last week that science raises all kinds of challenges to my belief system whether it's in psychology or philosophy or any of these disciplines all of these disciplines challenge my belief system and I have to deal with that I have to somehow try to create a framework of truth that's going to incorporate my beliefs. 
So I just proved there is God. Yeah, in terms of the issue of age of the universe and evolution, which raises certain questions. We can answer the questions, but certainly does raise certain questions. So in reading the source, I have to address those questions that emerge. This book brings you to a tale of 10,000 years ago. So raise the question, <coughs> raise the question, is the earth more than 10,000 years old? Or is it the 5763 that traditional Judaism actually speaks about on multiple occasions? Right? So now, we are concerned about that issue. Intensely concerned how to answer those questions that this book raises to our belief system. The part that we're not concerned about at all again is the contemporary part, the tale itself. The part that we are moderately concerned about is his portrayal, let's say, of biblical society. Why am I only moderately concerned about this? Is because he's not a scholar of the period, he's not an academician, he's not somebody that's confronting with facts necessarily or truth, and therefore it's not only of moderate concern. On the other hand, on the other hand, still in all, he does touch upon these issues with enough scholarship that it intrigues and it challenges and is able to present me with enough of an issue to want to respond to it, want to understand it. He's able to present, for example, in the reading that we read, pagan society, that I have to now ask the question, is in fact this really an accurate portrayal of pagan society, of Avodazara society? So that I have to deal with. It's not an intense concern to me because it's not necessarily historical. He's not telling me that it's historical. It's a fictionalized account. On the other hand, because I know that that which he presents is pretty accurate and pretty true to form, therefore I am intrigued and challenged by it. Literature is able to present certain historical phenomenon in a way that is even truer than the historical accounts of it. How could that be? Well, the embellishment may not be historical. That could be truer. Uh, I know why, because the emotions literature can get across can't be gone good. across in, in, in good. the Bible. Excellent, good. This shows in the emotions. Yeah, good, very good. And more, excellent. Eli Wiesel has an interesting introduction to his book called Legends of Our Times. In the book itself, he portrays himself as going to his Rebbe after the Holocaust. And his Rebbe asks him, what are you doing? You're writing, I'm writing stories. What are you writing stories about? Things that happened, things that happened. You're writing things that didn't happen? Yes, Rabbi, I'm writing things that didn't happen. You're writing lies? No, Rabbi, there are some things that didn't happen that are truer than those things that didn't, that did happen. What does that mean? That's what David said. That something that didn't happen, if you try to historically portray the Holocaust, you'll never be able to communicate the hard relative place. It's only really in the literature, the fictionalized account, that actually he portrayed the emotions, the feelings, the psychological upheavals that takes place in a person's mind as he reads about the Holocaust. Example, you could read all you want about, let's say you read the, the Order of the Death's Head, which is about the concentration camps, right? The Order of the Death's Head, which is a very graphic portrayal. Or you read The Holocaust Kingdom by Donat, who was a journalist who wrote about it, went through it, he portrays it. 
but none of them match the horror of the brothers Karamatov's description of the evil of let's say the Turks against the Armenians now which is really truer to life is it the Hagoskin which describes it journalistically or the emotions that people experience when they went through it obviously the emotions and that, therefore the fictionalized accounts of evil by Dostoevsky who is a great writer is able to portray the emotions and the world view of somebody that experienced that kind of evil much more graphically and more true to life in his fictionalized account than even a journalist who records only what took place is that clear? so therefore these portrayals of pagan society though they are fictionalized can actually evoke a stronger reaction to what took place than the Bible itself and yet the Torah seems to want us to react to the idolatry and paganism in that visceral way internal gut like way like we hate it and not understand yes. it yeah exactly right yeah David I think it's important to say that the responsible leader absolutely yeah, we're going to do that correct yeah you're absolutely right we're going to do that right we'll get to that okay good so now last week we had finished by speaking about the impact of the Jews and had noted that people such as Freud or Spinoza or Einstein or Marx all of these had great world ranging impact and therefore that could have been part of why Mishnah wrote the book we concluded on trying to you missed it Einstein, Spinoza, Freud and Marx let's now deal with my most serious question the part of the novel that raises the most serious questions for the Orthodox Jew so of course it's the tell and the years that the tell speaks about more than 10,000 how do we respond to this particular issue we all understand the question correct do we understand the question it says the, the tale is 10,000 years old we believe society is only 5,763 years old how do we d deal with that issue yeah please I'm sorry you solve the problem thanks next page See, <laughs> one can solve the problem very easily by saying the first six days were not days there were hundreds of years but there were millions and billions of years how do you define time? Right. What's the man? Right. How do you define time? We don't. We don't. No, we do. We don't. As a it's ten oh five. I live ten thirty. That's time. <laughs> Why not when the sun was created on the fourth day? Fine. Okay. Okay. But so then. So that's people have attempted to answer the the question that this book raises by trying to reinterpret the days of Bereshit. Right? that's one way of solving the problem if one were to assume that the 5763 years is from the creation of the world then we have that question right? maybe so, men got enlightened in 57 ok good another way of solving that question 
that perhaps only five sets of studies from civilization when man became aware of who he was as a human being or established society, whatever it may be. These are all various attempts at solving this question. Traditionally, it's five, seven, six, three is creation of the world, but we have answers. Count the days basically differently, what that five, seven, six, three really means from the time of civilization and from when man became aware of himself as a civilized human being. What it may be. A simple research that the first evidence of writing is only 5,800 years old. Yes. I've read that. Yeah, the first evidence of writing. Forget everything else. Of civilization. History begins at Sumer, which is the famous, the uh, famous, book, famous book on that topic. Yeah, history begins at Sumer. So that could be. And then, but that's one way of solving the problem. Anything from the science of God? That's Sorry? Not right now. Thank you, but not right now. So all I'm saying over here is that these are very good answers to this question. Right? But I'm going to try to take this discussion in a different direction. What we want to do is try to answer this question not only with reference to only specifically this question about the age of the universe, which is 12.3 billion years old, according to the latest estimate, but also in terms of every discipline, in the psychology, in biblical criticism, in archaeology, and all of these questions that are challenges to who we are as Jews. How do we pursue these other disciplines of knowledge if in fact they challenge us and anybody that goes to college understands and knows all of these challenges? You study Freud, religion is a problem for you. If you study Durkheim or Weber, then sociology, religion is a problem for you. You study philosophy, Leon walks in. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Leon walks in. It does. If you know Leon, it does. You want to close Leon? So, yeah, so that would all, these are all challenges. Philosophy challenges. If you study the history of religions, it challenges. All these disciplines challenge, in one way or another, your beliefs about Judaism. So how do we respond more globally than specifically the year 5763 versus 10,000 years? Well, that's easy. And the challenge does exist. If you do this, it is not necessarily a challenge. What is not? This year of the year. Why not? Because we solved the No, because it doesn't have to be a challenge from the outset. Why? Why not? Because who says that Torah is trying to tell you exactly when the world was created? Okay, good. So then it's not a challenge to Correct, anyone. right. So if we assume that the 5763, which all the rabbis hold sacred, and believe that that is the age of the world, and you ask 8 out of 10 rabbis, and they would say that the world is from that period of time, then your point's well taken in saying that that date ab initio is not a problem. Because where's the date from to begin with? Where does it come from? It's not biblical, it's kind of edic. Or it's even emoraitic. It's Seder Olam, which is a 3rd century or 4th century work. So that wouldn't be less of a problem. So even biblically, that the Torah is not trying to tell you when the world was created or how the world was created in an empirical sense. Then there's no issue. Trying to tell you Correct. Agreed. Agreed. That's one way of solving a specific problem. But again, I want to approach this issue more globally. And I would say that one has the obligation of pursuing truth as an absolute to the degree that we can understand and know truth and that Traditional Jewish sources, one second please, traditional Jewish sources demand of us to pursue truth. Or to say this in Hebrew, The seeking of truth is your religious obligation. So therefore, in any of these, in any of these disciplines, 
if you are pursuing truth and you come to truth then you are doing what God wants you to do so whether or not this is accurate or not whether or not the uh, physics of the world or psychology any one of these disciplines study to say the, the most critical and most difficult subject to probably study is biblical criticism that challenges us the most but if you are if you are pursuing truth and you come to truth then it has to be compatible with Jewish belief is that clear? do we accept all that? Or it's not Jewish belief. One or the other. Sorry? Which pasuk? It's not a pasuk. It's a formulation of what I'm saying. The seeking out for truth is a religious obligation. You're, you're religiously obligated. Where you get I just formulated it. I'm telling you. It's a summarizing. Well, I'm gonna, but I'm going to prove my statement. No, I will prove my statement. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. You'll actually prove my statement. So now, let's first look. Sorry? Look at the Gemara Masechet Yomah, Da'at Samech Tzed Amud Bet. We have a statement here, Hatamosh HaKadosh Baruch Hu Emet. God's seal is truth. Right? Now, what does that statement mean? God's seal is truth. Samech Tzed Amud Bet. What does that mean? God's seal is truth. God's seal is truth. Seal means it's more than his covenant. His, his, his signature, how he defines himself. By truth. So therefore you're required in all avenues, all areas of life to pursue truth. I'm sorry? God calls us what he is. Correct. We don't say what God is. Agreed. So God here is telling me, or the rabbis of the Talmud are telling me that God's seal is truth. The way we define God is by truth. So therefore, you're not allowed to pursue non-truth. You cannot do, deny truth, or do that which you believe to be not true. Where does it get that? I'm getting to that. Okay? Getting to that. Now, therefore... You must pursue truth. God's seal is truth. Which means that intellectual honesty, intellectual honesty is a reflection of what God is. So in the same way that we are required to pursue God's pathway, the same way that we are obligated to imitate God's ways, that presumably we have to pursue truth the way that God is the embodiment of truth, the essence of truth. Now, that comes to its clearest formulation in the work of the medieval Jewish philosophers. Sa'ajiba so, Owens, for example, in Menorah in his introduction, will tell us that one has to pursue wisdom, wisdom and knowledge, in order to arrive at truth. So Ajigal Oh is telling you, no, knowledge is that which is going to produce in you truth. The ultimate goal is truth. You cannot live a falsehood. So therefore, your goal should be to arrive at truth by way of knowledge and wisdom. Harambam Murinabukhim in part two of Murinabukhim, Guide for the Perplexed, chapter twenty five has an interesting formulation of this problem. 
it's one that every literate Jew, level three, should know. Right? One and two, no. But if you're at level three of literacy, you should know this chapter of Unayim Baruchim. It's that significant and that critical. What happens in Unayim Baruchim, part two, chapter 25? Rama deals with the issue of the of creation and eternity of the world. And he says to us over here that in fact Aristotle says that he's proven eternity of the universe. Eternity of the universe. It's proven. Aristotle said. And if it's proven, therefore the Rama says we have to now do what? Accept it. <laughs> Not just prove it, it's proven. It's can you prove all statement. All bachelors are unmarried. Can you try to disprove that? Exactly. Once Aristotle said that it's proven that the universe is eternal. But the key to Judaism is to begin to believe in the beginning. That's Correct. So now what do I do when we've proven absolutely with the same degree of courtesy and force that all bachelors are unmarried? You work into the text. What? Hold on to that a second. That's my answer. One second. Are you with me so far? I'm, I'm still stuck on Barishkara. You're going to get unstuck on it quick. So since Aristotle proved it as an absolute truth, therefore you must accept it, period. I'll let you continue. Or flaws in his reasoning. There's no flaws. He's proven it. All bachelors are correct. All bachelors are married, right? You want to disprove that? Like you want, but I'm sure he had more steps. You know, that, that's just the at the end of the, at the end of the proof, the bottom line is that he's proven it. So therefore, one, as Kenny says, must accept it because you have to pursue truth. Your premise is that it was proven. You're accepting it. No, it's proven. Thing of experimenting with it. That's different. It's proven. Period. Can we go on? <laughs> it's proven. Period. E equals MC squared. You accept it? It's proven. Yeah, I don't know about that. Now. Is that a theory? No, it's yeah, theory. it is. Proven. It's a theory. It's a theory. Yeah, don't use that one because it's not a good one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting cut pretty soon. It's very draining. Very draining. Anything that's proven as truth has to be accepted. However, however we discuss it, wherever we get to it, if it's accept it as a proof once it's proven as true it must be accepted by Jews and Judaism because God's seal is truth now the Rambam in Moreno Bukhim part 2 chapter 25 raises as an issue so now we have the next problem we must accept the truth of that statement because it's proven however he gets to it right so now I have all these Tesukim that talk about creation that David needs to believe in so what do I do with those Pesukim? I have to reinterpret them. I reinterpret all those Pesukim which talk about creation to really mean eternity of the universe. Why am I doing that? Because Torah cannot be contrary to truth. Truth is that which I prove. I prove in eternity. That all those verses that seem to imply creation really mean eternity of the universe. And by the way, until as late as 1947 and 1948, the eternity of the universe was a accepted assumption among all scientists. That's why. Not amongst right That's amongst why. all scientists up to 1967, when Arnold Penzias from the state of New Jersey, by the way, 
had, along with a person named Wilson, Professor Wilson, discovered the famous Big Bang, which seems to imply creation. But up to 1947, 1948, Glasgow and all other physicists believed in the eternity of the universe. Here is a closed system, right? One second. So now, with that, back to the point of your Pesukim, which imply creation, and you have a proven fact of eternity, what must I do, the Ramam says in 2.25? Reinterpret all those verses. What is greatest proof that that methodology is the one that one shall engage in? What verses do I all reinterpret because it's must necessity? No. God physical attributes. The Bible is full of God physical attributes. And we all know that it's philosophically impossible for God to have physical attributes. God's beyond physical attributes. And therefore, Haron Hashem, God's anger, or God coming down and going up, all those physical descriptions of God have to be reinterpreted. Moren Elohim is an entire exercise in reinterpreting all of those physical attributes of God. The, the seventy. The first 70 or 75 chapters of the book reinterpret all of those physical descriptions of God because God cannot have physical attributes. But the Bible says it does. So do I think that God really has a physical body? Do I, Gina? No, I don't. So what do I do? I reinterpret them. Because factually, proven, God cannot have physical attributes. God has no eyes. Though it says that He has eyes. So I must reinterpret all of those verses. I must reinterpret them. So I do that, do I not? So too, so too, if factually it's proven that the universe is eternal, though there are Pesukim which says there was creation, Ram says, I must reinterpret all of those verses. Was all that clear? Yeah, but you're dealing with a situation where Aristotle said the world was uh, eternal. We change the way we interpret all the Pesukim, and then we find out a couple hundred years later, correct, then I just go back to, to discover what really is the true interpretation of, that, of those Pesukim, meaning I have a text, I'm not always sure the text really means, so what do I do, I use science as a tool of interpretation of my text, in the same way that I have let's say for example a word, here's a verse, the Eid Ya'alim in Oz, that's what I got, Bereshit Perek Bet. What does the word Aleph Dalit Eid mean? Everybody says it means, everybody says, not really. I'm saying past 1030 for this one. I got it. Yeah, yeah. It's okay. 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 What does that word mean? Ed, not with Ed, Ed. I've never heard of it. Study your text. Now, what does that word mean? Every commentary will tell you that it means Ed, something rises up from the ground to water the Garden of Eden. Ed, what rises up? A mist. You look at the Tiberium Uncles. It means Anan, or a cloud, which rises up and ultimately. Two. Do exactly the water is God in Eden, right? So now I find a hundred years ago a Ugaritic dictionary, Ugaritic, which is a Canaanite language, and I find that an Edu, the same word, means underground stream. So what does the word Ed mean? An underground stream 
would rise up and water the Garden of Eden. So I use an ancient dictionary in order to know what the Bible means. Any problem with that? So what's the word mean? Underground stream. Finished. Correct? That's good. So too I use science as a tool to understand what the Bible actually, Tanakh, really means. Clear? If he's wrong, then I just rechange it whenever I know what the truth is. So my criteria is truth, and therefore I use every discipline that I can know in order for me to understand the Bible. For example, Man's inclination that is used is to be evil. So I use Freudian psychology to understand the id, the ego, and the superego. Freud only formulates in certain terms what is man's nature. If Freud is true, then it's reflective of what the Bible means. If Freud is wrong, then it's pushed it aside and we don't care about it. It's a medieval approach towards truth. Right. Correct. So when I'm but methodologically, it's what we would adopt today as well. Why? Because it's a medieval approach. Because it seems, because it's, it seems truth with a capital T is one entity and to the exclusion of all other things. Oh, right, Today you could say there are two types of truth. There is one a scientific truth, a religious truth, and a psychological okay, truth, and uh, yeah. they can all coexist in one world and some. Why do you have to, we're not medieval, why should we adopt the medieval methodology? Okay, let me come back to that next time. Okay, hold on to that for a second. So now the Ramam's value is in his methodological approach that what we want to do over here is pursue truth, God's seal is truth, and even if truth contradicts our simple understanding of verse, which we're going to sheet, because Aristotle proved it create eternity, there with the reinterpret. However, the Ramam says in two twenty five that guess what? Aristotle didn't really prove it. He thought he proved it, he said he proved it, but really he did not prove it. So therefore you have to reinterpret. But the methodological element of it is very important to us. That you want to pursue truth and whatever is proven as truth, you have to accept and then reinterpret. Right? Sorry? No, he doesn't have to, says. But had, but had he done it, we would prove it. As, for example, descriptions of God's physical attributes, we must reinterpret because we prove it philosophically that God cannot have eyes. God cannot be composite. God has no physical attributes, therefore I must, do, I must reinterpret. Wait, 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 we all clear, Dina? Clear? Okay, yeah, in order. Yeah. Does the reinterpretation have to equal the truth? Absolutely. All of them? All what then? All, all the reinterpretations. Of what? Every on every single word of the, of the beginning, or what the beginning is. It has to make sense. You know, every word sort of has to be truth. So whatever I have to reinterpret, I have to reinterpret it to make it correspond to what's proven as true. If it were proven as true. If it's not proven as truth, I have to worry about it. Let's take something much more halakhala um, ma'asir, much more real. Let's say I study biblical criticism, which is really the most challenging discipline to an Orthodox Jew. Let's say that we prove, which is not the case. Let's say we've proven, which is not the case, the theory of JEPD. There are four authors to the. Let's say we prove, which is not the case, the fourfold theory of JEPD. Right? I don't want to know what that is. Because there are four authors to the, to the, to the five books of Moses. Right? J-E-P-D. And the redactor. R. 
So if, we, if that's proven as an absolute, in the same way that are, are unmarried, all bachelors are unmarried, as an absolute, then I as an Orthodox Jew have to accept it. And if I accept it, then I have to re-understand the notion of the mosaic authorship of the Bible. But it's not true, don't worry about it. It's not true, so don't worry about it. Is that point clear? No, make it say that again. One take. The rabbi is not true. Oh, there is, that's what I'm afraid of. Are we all clear about this point? So if you were to be a Bible student, Yeshiva Flavish graduate, graduate Yeshiva Flavish learned orthodoxy for about 12 years. He came to my graduate, my graduate program and a PhD program. I was, I'm in, I was in philosophy. He was in Bible. And um, he was mesmerized by biblical study, which I am as well, by our professors who were extraordinary pedagogues. At the end, this particular student said, I'm pursuing Bible. And he got a PhD in Bible. He's a very important Bible scholar today. And all of his 12 years of yeshiva Orthodox education was thrown out the window. And he would tease the Orthodox student by saying, you think this pasuk is J or E or P? Maybe it's D. What do you think? And he had his proofs for it. But he was captured by the truth of that theory. And he became what you might call Apikoros, quote-unquote, because he accepted that theory as true and became a Ph.D. in Bible. Famous Hebrew Flavish student. Really right, a great, a great point. I would say Shomen misfought to some degree, but he certainly does not believe in the Mosaic authorship of Tanakh, which no, very few Bible scholars believe in. Similarly, I got a call about two years ago from a student of mine at, at Hillel. She's at U of P. She's studying, uh, taking a course with... Um, What's his name? Is wrote Devarim, wrote the commentary based on Devarim. Jeffrey Tige. The course of Tige, and she's bowled over by his approach to Tanakh, which is contrary to the what she learned for her 12 years. What do I do now, Rabbi? Doesn't make sense. He's saying his truth, and you said what you said is true. It's not corresponding. What do I do now? This is called the crisis of faith. Many students who go to college experience crises of faith based on what they're studying. And of course that Tanakh, the study of Tanakh, is the most difficult. The scientific issues we could solve, discuss, the psychological issues we could discuss and come away with. Although I was once shocked where um, I grew up, when I was in Flappers, I was very close friends to a particular person, Mordecai Weintraub, a very lovely person, he played basketball and all that together. And he was, he was a very from guy, much more than I was at that time. And I met him about five or six or eight years later and he, he became a psychologist, got a PhD in psychology, and threw out all of his religion. I said, well, why? I don't understand that. He says, you, how could you be religious if you understand psychology? Freud and Jung and all the psychological theories, he could not harmonize his psychology with his religion. He thought I was a fool to believe in religion when he, because he got a PhD in psychology. Difficult to correspond and harmonize these two disciplines, Judaism and psychology. Called Christ of faith, he fell on the wrong side of that, fa of that fence. So maybe he was too inflexible before that. I'm not trying to psychologize him. I'm just pointing out that many are the students who've gone through that academic experience. That's why they say that. Exactly. That's why they say yes. I think they're wrong because they don't attempt you don't, to harmonize, you don't, you don't to confront. Exactly. Right, sorry, Kenny? Well, what I was going to say is that that's a pretty revolutionary idea, and I don't think it's traditional. Which one are you talking about? Look, my mom is saying. His books are burned. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I know why. Warburg, not It's my understanding that Orthodox Judaism takes the Bible as being intrinsically true. And you're saying that there's a truth outside the Bible, and that the Bible has to be adapted to it, that the Bible is not intrinsically true. Right? Good point. Yeah, you're right. Although I would think that it's not as rare as you're implying all of the medieval. Sorry. There was more students that way. This. Most of them, all of the medieval rational tradition, the medieval rational tradition would accept Maimonidean formulation. I quoted Sa'ajiga on, uh, I quoted the Rambam, and multiple others. Ibn Ezra, for example, all will see truth as external to the Bible and expect the Bible to be in harmony with that external truth, which is called knowledge, wisdom. Maimonides was a bit more radical, but really is part of a a whole stream of rational Judaism. You're pointing out to another stream, which has intrinsic as opposed to external, and that's another stream of Judaism. It's similar to today. The Maimonides person today will say what I'm saying, the Maimonidean approach. Right? Welcome back. You'll come back eventually. <laughs> Thank you for coming back. But on the other hand, you have what's called, let's say, Haredi or right-wing Judaism, which will say what you're saying. Internal, self-contained truth. We don't care whether you prove the world is 14 billion years old. With every proof of the world, what are we going to say? 57. No, we're going to say that there are, that there are <coughs> married bachelors around. You got that point? That's what they're going to say. They found married bachelors. Even though, it's a, they don't care that it's contrary to truth. So Ryan Judaism would say that. And they don't care what any external truth says. We are wedded to the, your position, internal <coughs> self-contained truth. But you're quite right that the Rambam was somewhat radical in formulation, and yet I would also say that it's part of a very strong medieval tradition. And always keep in mind, back to David's point, that one age's orthodoxy is another age's heresy, and vice versa. Which means, I know, I know. Which means one age's heresy is one age's orthodoxy. Oh. They burnt the Rambam's books in the medieval period of time. They thought he was heretical. Today, nobody burns the Rambam's books. But they don't study what Some do, some don't. So the model that I see would be the Rambam, but the other position, we, you know, to the Kabbalistic position or others, which sees it as you pointed out. So do we see what we're talking about here? I began by telling you, oh no, pumpkin time. One more minute. What I began by telling you is that this book raised for me a very serious question as an Orthodox Jew. And I didn't see that question simply in terms of the age of the, wor- of the world of the Europe, 10,000 years old. I said it broadly. As a literate person, I have questions in every discipline I've ever studied, whether psychology or philosophy, all these raise questions for me. So therefore, how do I approach it? So I look to the notion of truth and the pursuit of truth, point number one. Point number two, I look at Sa'ajiga on the rational medieval tradition, telling me to pursue truth and use wisdom and knowledge external to the Bible in order to arrive at that truth. Wisdom and use is not external to the Bible. We do, but the, for example, physics is external to the Bible, or biology. We're not interpreting it like that. It's probably it. There's formulas in the Torah that they say. No, 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 no. That's voodoo. <laughs> I noticed. Yeah, that's a problem. But okay. <laughs> Too conflicting truth. No. No. I, the physics of, of modern science today is not to be found in the Bible. 
You're not going to find it. As we can interpret it today. Okay. Let's go. We just finish this at 10.30. Now, the Ramah 225. There. As well in Moreno Bukhim 247. Ki en ratsui It's not desirable to God anything other than the truth. Ki en ratsui lamakom ki im haemet. The en mach iso. What angers God? Ki masheket. Falsehood. Falsehood angers God, whereas truth is what God really wants. So therefore, we have to pursue truth. Or put differently, in Shemunat Barakim, the Raman says, Shema listen to truth from whatever its source. If it comes from Aristotle, or it comes from Al-Farabi, Avicenna, Rambam, you must follow truth from whatever its source. Shema Emet Listen to truth from whatever its source. So truth becomes your criteria for living life. Everything you do has to be a pursuit of truth. Right? So therefore, there are, there are multiple statements more in that tradition that demands of us to pursue truth. So what I conclude from all of this is that if the source, the book, makes a statement that it's contrary